1: subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established the authorities that exist have been established by God consequently whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what has what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves for rulers hold no terror for those who do right but for those who do wrong do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Sick burn, Kez. Um, Okay, the outline and the passage are printed (coughs) in your sheets. Can I say a big hello to those watching online as well? A whole bunch of people uh, having a difficult time at the moment. It's not been the easiest month. I've just come off my family and I had had COVID, so uh, we're back, which is good. But uh, if you're at home, we hope you're doing okay. Uh, And it's so good that you can be with us in that way. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot of things that annoy people. The passage before us this evening, though, is right up there with the best of them. I've just realized, um, Fergus, you're on slides. My slides are not in here, but they are in the morning. If you can find them, that would be amazing. If not, it would be like a 5% difference. So, This passage... Uh, is right up there with the best of them, the the, the passages that really irritate people. Everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Pay your taxes. And maybe the best line, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. This is not a passage designed to get Australians on side, is it? I don't know what your reactions were as we read it. Uh, We'll talk about that a bit as we go through thing is, though, this passage wasn't an accident. It's not like Paul just didn't think about this one very much and and carelessly said a bunch of stuff that if if he'd considered it, he would have put things differently. Remember that this passage is in Paul's letter to the church. Where? In Rome. Rome, the capital of maybe the greatest empire in human history. Have a slides going. I've got just a picture from Asterix. As I said, it doesn't add that much. Um, the greatest empire in human history, right? Whose emperors were worshipped as gods. Whose armies kept peace from Britain all the way to Persia. The only power ever to control the whole Mediterranean. There it is. Amazing work, Fergus. Thank you. Right? The Romans referred to the Mediterranean as our sea. Imagine having your own sea. There he is, Julius. Right, you don't write a letter to the church in Rome and include a bit about governing authorities without thinking about what you're writing. So we need to pay attention to what Paul wrote here because it's very deliberately and carefully done. It's also, now you might take some convincing on this, but bear with me, it's also much more interesting than it first seems. Because you see, what Paul is doing here is he is affirming the legitimacy and the importance and the place of political authority in a way that also constrains it and challenges it and limits it. He's he's pushing it in a new direction, even as he says it's a good thing. In this passage, what Paul does is he accepts the place of governing authority, but in a way, that kind of bursts its bubble. Uh, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, so let's have a look at the passage and what Paul does here. Let's, let's slow down a bit. So he, he talks first about the place of government. Secondly, he talks about its purpose. And then finally, he talks about our responsibilities towards government. So that's where we're going. That's the outline, Then there's a bit at the end as well. Okay, so Paul talks first about the place of government, where it fits, and why it has a right to exist. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, he says. <coughs> Passages in your outline as well, by the way. For there is no authority except that which God has established. And then he reiterates, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Now there's a point here that's hard to see in the English, but is quite clear in the original Greek. And it's worth noticing, I think. The word for be subject, don't worry, you don't need to read Greek. I'm going to read it out, but I just in case you do, that's, that's what it is. Uh, otherwise, it'd just be fake. Um, the word for be subject <coughs> and the word for established are, from, are both forms of the same Greek word. Okay, Both of them are forms of the Greek word hupotasso, which means literally like something like place under. I think this is worth noticing because I'm sure Paul did this deliberately. It's not very easy to capture in English, but basically he's saying, everyone place yourselves under governing authority because all authorities are placed under God. What he says next is connected to, in verse 2 he says, consequently whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And here, the word for rebel is the same word again. or It's just a slightly different form of it. Literally, something like place against. The idea is that the rebel puts themselves against what God has put in place in a certain order, and the result will be God's judgment. So what we have here is a pretty clear picture in which governing authorities are established by God. They're put in a certain place, under God and over others. It's a picture that has roots in the the Old Testament where God raises up kings and rulers and he casts down others. Governing authorities, the apostle says here, are put in their right place by God, and we need to respect that and and organize ourselves around it. Now, there are many questions that come up at this point, I'm sure. Sure. But perhaps the most obvious one is to ask whether we should still really think like this today. After all, don't we, don't we live in a democracy? And in a democracy, who is it that puts government in place? Isn't it the people? Right? Not, not, not God, we do it, don't we? Maybe this passage applied in a world where you had emperors and kings and things, but surely not anymore anymore. Well, yes and no. And not just because, need I point out, we do still actually have a queen. We do. Like it or not, she's still there. It's true that we do have a different political system. That's definitely true. And it's also true that most of us have a limited say in who gets elected. Although only those of us who are over 18. There's some people here who know very well Uh, what it's like to have to accept authorities placed over them without any say in it. But I want to put to you that being able to vote doesn't actually change our, our experience of governing authority very much. We all know, actually, that elections are mysterious things. They're produced by the strange alchemy of popular opinion and chance events and political opportunity, none of us really controls the outcome very much. It's, 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 kind of, it's much more actually something that happens to us, a government being put in place. And most of political life is not elections. Most of it, for the vast majority of people most of the time, government is simply there set over us, making judgments and rulings and laws that we just have to reckon with. Even if we play a role in deciding who government will be, we also still often have to accept those set over us, prime ministers, judges, officers, and so on. That's not to say that there's no differences between Paul's world and ours. There are differences, and some of them are great, but... I am saying that these words are still very relevant. Fundamentally, political authority is something that is raised up and put in place by God. And this happens in a range of ways, and sometimes we play a part in that, and that's great. But it is still true that authorities are set in place by the Lord, and they're under his authority and placed over us, and we we might well be called to respect that. Now, you may not be convinced of this yet. That's okay. Let's just press on for a moment uh, because I want to see what Paul says next because what we see next is that this way of seeing things is is actually good news. You see, what follows from this, from the idea that government is put in place by God and appointed under him, what follows is that government has a particular role to play. It has a purpose that it is responsible for fulfilling. If governing authorities are put in place by God, then they don't have, and they shouldn't pretend to have, absolute power and the freedom to do whatever they want. Look what Paul says from verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free? From fear of the one in authority, then do what is right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, again, a bunch of objections probably erupt as I read these words. You're just too polite to actually shout them. (laughs) What about when it's not like that? Rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Tell that to Christians in China or North Korea. Tell that to Aboriginal people throughout most of Australian history. I actually totally agree with those examples. But I don't think that gets what Paul's doing here. You see, Paul, the Apostle Paul, knew very well that rulers were not always like this. Right? If you know anything about his own experience, you'll know this. He himself had been wrongly imprisoned, beaten, harassed by rulers repeatedly. Have a read of the book of Acts and his letters to see what Paul's experience of governing authorities was like. He, he didn't kind of sail through life without any troubles with the police. He also knew perfectly well that the Roman Empire was corrupt and that Roman rulers could be terrible. To state the most important and obvious point, he worshipped a Messiah who was killed by them. But just let that last point register, won't you? Paul writes this, this, even though Jesus was wrongfully executed by the Romans, by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Christianity is founded on on an awareness of a monumental failure of political justice. It's literally in the Christian creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. So what Paul is doing here is not, it can't be a kind of naive picture of government is your friend. What he's doing, actually, is describing what government is like when it's working right. He's describing what government ought to be, and what it can be, and often is. Let me stress that last point. Government can be this, and it often is this. Paul's words don't work unless this is true, unless governments do often look like this and they do actually even the worst governments even the worst governments do some or even many right things otherwise they tend to collapse even corrupt and broken governments often sustain civil order and they keep many things functioning and in a country like Australia this is definitely true that on the whole Governing authority, which means the authority of police and courts and laws. On the whole, it is on the side of what is just. I stress that I'm not saying there are not exceptions and failures. There are quite a lot, sometimes terrible ones. But here's the critical point. They only count as failures if what Paul says here is true. They only count as failures of government, as things that we have a right to be angry and upset about, if if this is what government is supposed to be like. And this is the really interesting thing that Paul is doing here, you see. He is giving an account of government that is also a challenge to government, that is a standard, an account to which it can be held. And it's a standard that also deflates it, that bursts its bubble a bit. You see, to say that the Roman emperor or any Roman ruler, to say that it is God's servant for your good, which is what Paul says in verse 4, hope you caught that, that's actually an amazing move. We might not notice it. You might not notice it because our politics has already been deeply shaped by this thought. Western understandings of government have been deeply shaped by this passage, in fact. the word minister that we use for the prime minister and ministers of cabinet and so on, is taken straight from this passage. I have to explain this a little bit, but minister just means servant. okay? And in the King James Version, it was the word used in verse 4 for servant. He is the minister of God to thee for good. That's the, the old English version. We call our government leaders ministers because of this passage and its teaching that government is a servant. But you did not say that about the Roman emperor. He was no one's servant. Nor were his officials or armies or judges. They were lords, rulers, gods. But Paul says, actually, no, they're just God's servants for your good. God has given them a job, and it's a good job that you can get behind. They have authority, and they wield force to punish wrongdoing and uphold right. They make it possible for us not to retaliate and seek vengeance, as we heard about in chapter 12 when we did that a couple of weeks ago. Because they try to keep the peace and they try to ensure that evil has consequences. That's what they're meant to do. And It's fundamentally a good thing. And that's why Paul says we're free to welcome their contribution to our lives. This is where he goes in verse 5. Did you notice? Therefore, it's... Oh, white screen. You've got it there in front of you in your sheets if you need it. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. You see what Paul's doing here? He's saying that we can submit to and accept authority and go with it, not just because we're afraid of it, but because we also actually see how it can be a good thing. That's what he means by because of conscience. Conscience is about our individual recognition of what is good and right. And Paul is saying that there is a way for all of us, actually, to submit to government freely, as a matter of conscience, because we see that fundamentally it's a good thing that government is trying to do. Again, let me stress, Paul is not, I really don't think he's being naive here. He did not expect his readers to cheerfully agree with everything the Roman authorities commanded. But he's saying that our basic stance can be to welcome rulers, as fundamentally something given by God for our good. Okay, well, if that's our basic responsibility, how do we actually do that? Well, Paul says some of the things that need to be said in verses 6 and 7. He says, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing." Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We pay taxes and revenue and parking fines and whatever. We give honor and respect and acknowledgement. That's what submitting to authority looks like. In the Roman Empire, tax was one of the fundamental ways people could submit to authority. It was a burdensome tax regime at times. It was pretty unfair. It's pretty unequal in a range of ways. Perhaps in some ways it's not so different now. Certainly tax is just as important. But Paul invites his readers to think about taxes and all the different levies and extra payments that were demanded. He invites them to think about them in a new way. Think of them, he says, as you contributing to service that God has established. It's a good work to pay taxes because this is a job that God has given and it's for the common good. Friends, it's tax time. Rejoice. Not because you have no quarrels with the tax system. You don't have to agree with everything. You don't have to never be grumpy about anything. Anybody here work for the ATO? Tax collecting in the Roman Empire, was you had to be a real crook. That's different now, thanks be to God. I wish there was somebody. Come on, guys. Anyway, there are going to be objections, quarrels, complaints. But i tell you what we do have we do have the freedom to see that fundamentally what we're doing when we submit to authority and accept it, and when we pay our taxes and give our dues, fundamentally we're helping God's servants get on with their work. This has been the basis for all sorts of Christian reflection on tax, actually. Christians since the Reformation, and probably even before that, have thought about tax for it's as as a way of kind of giving to the poor another conversation now there is much more to say about what it means to submit to the governing authorities and we just don't have time and that's okay i think it needs to be an ongoing conversation but i am going to say two more things on this point to hopefully help us talk about it well first christians have always assumed and known that there are limits to what we're called to accept And there are limits because governing authority is not the highest authority, but it is under God. To give you one example, in Acts chapter 4, the book of Acts, the apostles are ordered by the ruling authorities, they're ordered to stop talking about Jesus. And they respond, and they basically say, well, we can't do that. Here it is. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied... Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Well, no, says Peter. We're not going to do that. Christians have always known that there are moments when rulers exceed their authority, and so they, they can't be obeyed. The second thing to say, though, is that even the refusal to obey authorities can be done in a way that respects and, and it kind of accepts authority. Okay, When the apostles make this statement, they do it in a way that, they, they sh- that shows that they are going to submit to its consequences. They say, you be the judges. You are the judges. They don't try to run away or fight. They just say, we're not going to do that, and so you need to make up your minds what you're going to do to us. Submission to authority, you see, doesn't have to mean obedience at every point. It can mean willingness to accept the consequences of disobedience. Last year, just to give you a controversial example, last year lots of people were told, either by government or by their private employers, that if they didn't get the COVID vaccine, they would lose their jobs. Those who refused to get the vaccine and calmly accepted the loss of their jobs, they were actually submitting to authority. Now, I think most of you know, but if you don't, I'll just tell you, I'm a big fan of the vaccines. I've had about 100 of them now, uh, and all my children have been vaccinated, and I've always encouraged people to get them. That's a position I've taken, and as a church, we've, you know, uh, have always been for them. But I think those who calmly accepted the consequences of their decision and, and lost their jobs, I think they were showing the attitude Paul calls for here as well. In the same way, people who protest peacefully and then they accept the consequences without trying to escape them they're still within the boundaries that Scripture calls for here. Because they're not refusing the overall legitimacy of authority, they're just refusing the rightness of its judgments at a particular point. I'll give you another example. There is all the difference in the world between somebody who um, chains themselves to the gate of a mine, right, and then waits for the, so that they can make a statement, and then waits for the police to come and calmly accepts arrest, and somebody who secretly puts a really heavy-duty bolt in a tree so that when the timber guy comes along, the machine will have a major malfunction and they might be killed. You see, both of those are an environmental protest, but one reflects a kind of fundamental attitude of submission but disagreement at a point. That's the kind of conversation we should have. Uh, Well, that's that's the shape of the conversation I think it can take. I hope all that's food for thought, uh, but I don't want to finish there. I want to finish by returning us to the big picture of what we see here. Paul does the same thing in verse 6 that he did in verse 4. I don't know if you saw it there. He describes political authority in terms that change the way it is understood and that stop it from being inflated. The authorities, Paul says, are God's servants. He uses a different word there in verse 6, though, for servants, though. The word he uses there, uh, a different Greek word, it's a word that was mostly used in religious and ritual contexts. It's almost like the term you might use for the people who help to give out communion. You know when when we do the Lord's Supper here, some people help to give it out. This is like the word you might use for them. And that's what the governing authorities are, says Paul. And they beaver away at their service all the time, and they deserve our respect for it. You see what Paul's doing here? He is reframing political authority, radically reframing it, actually. He's describing rulers and judges, lords and princes, in a way that is designed to save us and them from an overblown sense of their importance by giving us and them a way of thinking about their job as service. Political authority is very spiritually dangerous, you see. Very dangerous. Because the right to govern and to make laws and to judge, these have a kind of magical power. Those who represent communities and command their strength, they can seem like gods. That was definitely true in the Roman Empire and even in Australia where no one likes politicians very much. This is still true. The high offices in our land can attract a kind of reverence and attention. That is at one level okay because they are important, these tasks, but at another level it's spiritually dangerous because it can make us forget where authority really lies. Do You know, the Bible knows this danger. The Bible knows this danger. The Bible warns again and again that the arrogance and delusions of kings will bring them down. Let me give you just one good example. Psalm 2 begins with a picture of nations and kings rising up to cast off God's rule. It says, why do the nations rage? or conspire, two different ways to translate that. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up together, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, which means Messiah, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. But then the psalmist takes us to heaven, and we see this madness for what it is because God laughs at them. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The nation's conspiring and raging is laughable, ridiculous, because God has put his king on Zion. The battle is already over. Do you know the earliest Christians applied this psalm almost instantly to Jesus? In Acts chapter 4, just after the section we read before, they quote these words from Psalm 2. And then they go on and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They, They read this psalm and they said, That's exactly what happened to Jesus. The rulers conspired against him. But what happened? They conspired against the Messiah and they put him to death, but God raised him up. Here's Peter talking to the rulers in the next chapter of Acts. Peter and the other apostles apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Which Jesus was that? Oh, the one you killed by hanging him on a cross, that was a mistake. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour. I love that he says prince there, kind of just pointing out, he's the true ruler here. That he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of sins. We're witness of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. You think you're in charge, says Peter, but you are not. God has set his king at his right hand and he is the prince and the saviour and not you. And he is the one who can bring forgiveness and life. And that is the reality that has won the day and that you are going to have to submit to one day. And you can either get with the program, says Peter, or you can be blown away by it. Now all of this this is not on the surface in Romans 13, but it is beneath the surface. It does lie behind what Paul says here. By describing governing authorities as God's servants with a particular task to do justice, what Paul is doing is he's opening a door. He's opening a door for political authority, even Roman authority, to stop raging against the Messiah and to find a better purpose. You see, this what Paul writes here, this was not how Roman authorities thought about themselves, and it is, it is often not how governments today see themselves. But by seeing things this way, by operating as if this is how things are, what we do is we give our rulers and we give society a gift. We give them the opportunity to recognize that the Lord has set his king on Zion. For the one that the rulers killed has been raised from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of God. So to see government this way, let me finish just by saying this last thing. To see government this way, to treat rulers and authorities as God's servants and to submit to their authority in this way, it is a costly stance. It's not easy. It costs you. Why? Because so often they do fail. So often power is abused. Authority is mishandled. That was true in Paul's day. It's still true in ours. To try to operate this way, to to try to keep holding open this door to a different, better way of imagining government, it's a form of generosity to our society and our rulers. To see things this way and to keep trying to see things this way and encouraging our government to see themselves this way and others to see them this way. This is one of the costly ways that Christians are called to bless the world they live in. We don't do it because it's obvious or easy or because if you look at government, it always just looks like this. It doesn't. We do it because we are called to be people who forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. We are called, as the passage just before this one says, we are called to not return evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good. And this stance towards government is that principle in action. It is a form of costly generosity to our world. And it's open to us because we know that God has shown us that costly generosity in Christ. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. And we praise you that you have exalted your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to your right hand. And that he is the true Prince and Saviour, the only one in whom there is forgiveness and life. We pray that we would have the grip upon that mercy and grace you have shown us that gives us the generosity to keep putting ourselves out there in the world around us and to keep even seeing the good in authority that is often very broken, finding and accepting things that are good and worth fighting for even when the world we're in is full of mess. We pray that we would be people of courage and faithfulness in this. For Jesus' sake. Amen.
0: Well, we're going to lift our eyes from earthly things to our heavenly King as we declare together the Apostles' Creed. Uh, As we declare this together, if you're unsure about the things that we believe as Christians with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, uh, please do come and have a chat to myself or someone you came with after the service and we'd love to chat to you more about what it is that we believe as Christians. But let's stand as we declare this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. We're going to continue to stand as we sing in song and continue to lift our eyes to our God.